Well, I'm just getting rained on. I'm wondering if you can hear the pitter-patter of rain coming through. Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. G'day, this is Dave and you're listening to Living the Dream and I really just wanted to take some time today to record, I guess, a special episode on the looming COVID-19 recession or a couple of thoughts about how the COVID-19 pandemic is kind of impacting the situation of capital accumulation in Australia and just to kind of get my head around it and to contribute to some of the discussion Um, because I feel... There's obviously things are really moving very quickly in the world. Things are quite stressed. Things are quite worrying. I don't really have anything to say about uh, COVID-19 as an illness. I have no special understanding about um, what the shape of this pandemic is actually going to be, how big uh, the impact it's going to have on people's lives, those kind of things. And I'm, I guess I'm as torn between like uh, panic and false security as anyone else out there is about this. But what I, I did want to kind of try to wrap, grapple with, get to kind of grips with, is how it intersects this phenomena with the kind of trajectory of capital accumulation at the moment and um, try to make sense of that because I think things are moving very quickly. I I actually get the impression or I actually feel that things have been moving very quickly for quite a while now that something is unfolding or something is changing in the dynamics of global capital that the kind of long hiatus the holding pattern since the financial crisis of 2007 2008 is becoming unstuck and in that a a surge of ideas and arguments are out there and i've wanted for a while to um to try to get to grips with that but also the kind of urgency of the discussion that's going on has made it made me less confident about saying anything like uh, more insecure about having something useful to say so I'm kind of trying to push myself here to uh, talk about it in a kind of meaningful way so what what I want to do now is I want to think a little bit about um, the stimulus package that's just been announced by the federal government in Australia here, how COVID-19 is impacting capital accumulation in Australia, and then also try to kind of locate that in the trajectory of capital accumulation as it, as it's proceeding. So this morning, and I'm recording now on, I think it's the 12th, <laughs> 12th of March, Thursday the 12th of March, the federal government announced the stimulus package in response to COVID-19. Um, you can obviously find the details of the stimulus package online but it looks like at the moment that it's going to be somewhere between 18 billion dollars and 22 billion dollars projected over 15 months and the government's talked a lot about that the plan is scalable so I assume that means that where they've built in some kind of idea that it might change with time it seems to make up a number of different elements like one point that's been talked about uh, quite a lot is that there'll be a $750 payment that'll be made to households that receive um, some form of already existing government welfare payment so that's going to be less than five billion dollars will be spent on that um, 
employers who employ apprentices will be able to apply for a subsidy um, of up to 50% of the apprentice's wage or a trainee's wage to in an attempt to keep them employed and businesses will also be able to write down um, assets a lot more easily and there also uh, there's a reference to I need to find some details about this the boosting cash flow for employers measure which will provide $25,000 to small and medium businesses there's something as well if you're a pensioner to your deeming rate which I don't quite understand I think it's the point where the assets that you own cut off how much pension you get will be reduced or lowered so when you look at it broadly the the main thrust of um, this plan is to is a subsidy for capital effectively giving companies direct access to cash subsidizing trainees wages and also being able to write off um, uh, various different forms of expenditure in an attempt to increase the supply of capital. And, and on the other side, a small part of the, the plan, less than $5 billion, will be going to one-off uh, welfare payments for, the, for people who are already on the pension. So that's what it looks like. I think in many ways this is pretty consistent um, with what the, fed, the federal government's broad approach. I think it's quite common in the left at the moment to think about uh, the Scott Morrison government as having no agenda or no idea or, or being inactive. And I think that's completely wrong. I think what we've seen consistently with the Scott Morrison government is actually a strategy, right? And the strategy is, well, what, what is it trying to deal with? It's trying to deal with the problem that every state has faced since the 2007-2008 crisis, which is how can we uh, support capital accumulation um, and how can we fund the state? And that they've been, and, and to allow a level of social reproduction. And th th those priorities have been in conflict with each other, where states have simultaneously wanted to spend more to support capital and spend less to um, make, to be able to fund uh, social reproduction at a level uh, where state debt is minimised as much as possible. It's wanted to do those two contradictory tasks. And I think the approach that the Morrison government has taken is to be one of well, what we are going to do is increase the supply of capital through the reduction of taxation, uh, then needing the state to have to deal with that reduced income coming in. Is that effective? Is it not? Look, I don't really have the, the data on that, but I would assume in the broad conditions that we're in, and we're going to talk about that in more detail, simply increasing the supply of capital doesn't necessarily mean that those firms are going to, then going to take uh, that, that capital and invest that in terms of their daily ordinary activities. I'm not sure that a cafe or um, a tool manufacturing firm or a tourism business that that would increase its access to capital by reduced taxation is necessarily going to take that and reinvest it in its business. I think it's just as likely that they pay themselves out of that money or they take that money and they invest it into uh, financial speculation. And we can have a little bit of a chat. Hopefully we'll get to that point in this show about what those broad historical and systematic tendencies that are pushing things in that direction um, are about. I think it's probably worth thinking about why phenomena like this um, have a particular impact in capitalist societies on a whole. So I don't really have anything to say about um, the relationship between capitalism and the production of viral pandemics, 
there's an excellent article um, called Social Contagion, I think it is, by the journal, and I'm going to mispronounce it, uh, Chuang, which is a, um, a blog slash journal focused on China. It is possibly not only the best resource about China, it's possibly the one of the best uh, communist publications in English in the world. And this article, Social Contagion, you should really check it out. It really looks at um, what are the driving forces, particularly in capitalist development in relation to agriculture, which seems to increase the rate of viral pandemics and also then impacts, affects the impact of how those viral pandemics play out. You should, you should really check that out. But I think we could also um, kind of make a couple of abstract points. One is that I guess um, any kind of viral phenomena, any kind of disaster would affect any kind of society. And one of the things that it does would interrupt the daily flow of activities. And kind of daily repetition, you know, daily production is necessary to any kind of human society. Humanity every day must go about reproducing the things that we require to keep us alive in that society, to keep that society functioning. Food, shelter, iPhones, what have you. But I think the inter there is a difference between different societies based around the kind of motor production that they have. And it re relates to how things are produced and how things are distributed. In a capitalist society, of course, production, human creative activity and its relationship with the natural world is driven by private firms making investments in an attempt to uh, make money, to make profit and invest it again on a greater scale, ad infinitum. As Mark says, accumulate, accumulate, that is Moses and the prophets, right? Wealth is only produced because it can realize profit. To put it in more technical terms, use values, meaningful things, are produced not as ends in themselves, but so they can realize value in the form of money. That's the main driving rationale. And each firm exists in a relationship with all other firms in its market, which at this point is global. Capitalism has always emerged as a global encounter and it has historically proceeded in that direction to become more and more global with an important and complicated history behind that. And Rosa Luxemburg uses a term, Luxemburg uses a term which I think she takes from Sismondi, uh, which is to describe every firm existing as if it's a spiral, you know, kind of expanding spiral interlocked with all other spirals. And so that's a firm, you know, has to like buy inputs, then has to sell into the market and it's relying on all the other firms in the market functioning to you know create demand to employ their workers to need things to provide supplies and all the wealth of that society takes the form of a commodity right something to be bought and something to be sold so for the, this entire ensemble to work it relies on an endless series of commodity exchanges to happen every day Things must be taken to market and things must be sold. But the commodity form itself has in it, built in it implicitly, the potential for crisis, right? Because it may not sell. And as soon as a commodity doesn't sell or as soon as it, enough commodities do not sell at sufficient level, then that entire collection of relationships that guarantee um, production to be able to function begin to break down. 
Now, the radical argument that is advanced um, by Marx, but it actually has an older um, heritage, is the idea that there is something inherent in the capitalist mode of production itself that leads to the creation of crises, that its very productivity leads to a, a crisis of overaccumulation. So a, product, you know, a declining rate of profit and a production of commodities on such a volume that it becomes impossible for enough commodities to be sold to realise profit in a sufficient way and the entire system chokes on being too productive, right? But that also doesn't ignore the fact that there can actually be other forms of crisis that feed into this, this moment, where something like a viral pandemic um, effectively hits and interrupts these points in multiple different ways. Sick people can't go to work, people don't go to the shops and the like, so it interrupts the flow of that commodity. And capitalism is particularly susceptible to this because it is only through those countless exchanges that it functions and reproduces itself on a daily basis. Now let's go even further and say as someone who lives within capitalism because we live inside this social relationship we are broadly dependent on its normal functioning on this huge structure that we have that exploits us that we are exist in but are alienated from and have an antagonistic relationship to to basically function on a daily basis so there is the potential that the very kind of stuff the collective mess of uh endless commodity exchanges that allow our lives to function and the lives of all the people that we love can go into cardiac arrest driven either by its own internal contradictions or because of an outside phenomena. And I think what we're seeing with COVID-19 is this being expressed in two different ways. So one is that it is directly interrupting kind of core economic activity. And the second is that this interruption is being magnified on the level of the finance markets and on fictitious capital. So on either side of the capitalist mode production, it is putting pressure on already existing um, spots of tension to propel a, the generalised crisis of the system. But the argument that I'd probably like to make is that this generalised crisis of the system is not produced by COVID-19. It's rather that the kind of directions that things were already going are being further exacerbated um, by its development. We're already seeing, as COVID-19 emerges, the situation we're already in was global GDP growth was slowing. GDP growth is the measure that uh, mainstream economists really use to judge the health of the capitalist system. So we were already in a situation where that was slowing. Australia itself had already been in a condition that we would, would call a retail recession. So this is that there was a significant um, negative growth in, in the retail sector of the economy. That's even before you factor in the bushfires. And key to this was stagnating wages growth. And there's a lot of people who want to explain the origin of the crisis of the system on the level of stagnating wages growth. Because there's not sufficient growth in aggregate effective demand, people aren't going to shops, not buying things, that's causing this retail recession. Therefore, if we increase aggregate effective demand, increase wages, we will kind of solve the problem of capital accumulation. That's quite common if you read like The Guardian, um, you know, the Australia Institute, people like that are, are really kind of making this argument, the Greens. I would actually say... Um, 
that that is not true, that stagnating wages growth are not the cause of the system, but is a product of the generalised slowdown. That wages, um, you know, wa- wages are impacted in the short term by the relationship between the demand for labour in relation to the supply of labour in the context of the respective powers of capital and labour duking it out for each other. And so what we've actually seen uh, is a decline in demand for labour as investment slows, which is one of the things that's put kind of downward pressure on on wages. Not And that lack of investment is a symptom of what I want to kind of uh, talk about. I think we could say broadly that since about the 1970s, coming out of the crisis of the 1970s, that growth uh, has been slower in global capitalism than it was during the post-war boom, that the rate of profit uh, was declining or stagnating in relation to what had happened before the the, uh, the post-war, Second World War boom, and that there's been a de- general decline in industrial capital as a proportion of the world system. They're kind of broad tendencies. And that uh, this was all products of a crisis of overaccumulation, that there is too much capital in the world uh, for capitalism to effectively valorise itself um, at, at a higher, high enough rate of profit to continue its kind of healthy growth. And rather than this crisis kind of like coming to a head, since the 70s, there's been a a kind of mix of uh, compensating methods. So one thing that has happened is that uh, globally holding down wages and stagnating wages growth has increased uh, the profit of enterprise. So that is the amount of profit a company makes um, after you take away um, how much it has cost to borrow the money to invest. Pushing down wages has kept up profit of enterprise and also really low interest rates like making um, making uh, money cheap to borrow has also uh, made the profit of enterprise bigger. So that's kind of compensated for that general stagnating rate of profit. What you've also seen is a massive expansion in finance, um, both in just kind of volume size, but as a proportion of the economy, where more and more firms have subsidised or offset their lack of... um, realising profit from making commodities or buying and selling through increased uh, investment in in financial markets. And something that's very interesting about this is, uh, you know, when often you think about a a bond or a share, and so, you know, so what you're really thinking is, okay, you get some money from like um, a dividend or from interest, and that's related to the real economic activity out there. But what's happened with the growth of financialization is that more and more profits have been made by just buying and selling commodity, buying and selling fictitious uh, capital, by buying and selling financial assets. And so that really works um, because since the late 70s, kind of the in- interest rates have been kept low in part by central banks, which has kept on being pushing money into um, the financial market. And this has kept on inflating prices and people have made profits by buying and selling backwards and, and forwards from each other. And what we've seen is a rapid series of kinds of booms and busts since the late 70s. And every time this happens, central governments step in and kind of bail out the, the financial sector. They keep inter- they force interest rates lower and they force more funds into it. And that really hit a crescendo in 2007, 2008. And then Coming out of 2007 and 2008, um, 
you, what you've you've had is more of this. You had the bailouts and then unorthodox monetary policy, lots of cheap money being hurled into the financial system. Now, I think it's really important to get over any kind of ideas that really kind of counterpose kind of the real economy versus the financial economy. Capitalism has always required finance, right? Finance is where capital is pulled together and then thrown into in, into investment. But what has especially happened since the late 70s with the growth of finance in both size and in you know both size and relative to the rest of capital is that all players in the capitalist economy have been reliant on incomes that arise um, from finance to subsidize how they function. So households are reliant on credit, um, in companies are reliant on the monies they make from, from financial investments, states borrow, superannuation to fund retirement. They've all been, all been reliant on it. But simultaneously, financial markets develop what Marazzi calls his um, a kind of mimetic nature to them where um, how they behave is they follow patterns where all the different actors buy and sell based on if they think other people are going to buy and sell. What that means is when you have a moment where um, players in the financial markets think that other people think that a crisis is emerging, they act like a crisis is emerging, if that makes sense. If they think people are going to sell, they sell. They think people are going to buy, they buy. And so what we're seeing um, when we're talking about the massive drop in financial value is that people are selling off um, asset, a whole bunch of assets to invest in assets they think are safe, like state bonds or gold or, or, or things like that. And that rationality, that form of activity is being reproduced through the structure on the whole. I think what is important is to understand that these, the phenomena of slowing growth and financial instability was the story of 2019, right? And this was happening because the kind of compensatory activity that came out of the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 had kind of exhausted itself, that um, there was very little more that states could do um, to keep stimulating the economy, where you either had the you know, Chinese state, the, the level of debt that it has accumulated to keep industrial production going, very important for Australia because we dig shit out of the ground and we, we sell it to China, or reducing interest rates to such low levels to be hurled into the financial market. This would create this huge balloon of debt, which becomes a source of instability itself. So one of the ways that I think about it, it's like a giant anti-gravitational machine, that this had been kind of stopping the roof falling in and had been holding things off, holding things off, but kind of worsening the roof when it collapses. This was already beginning to become unstuck across 2019. What COVID-19 does is just intensify this phenomena by effectively interrupting the production and circulation of commodities and furthering kind of panic in the financial markets, squeezing the system by both ends. For me, I think that means um, it is very unclear that there is any form of activity that capitalist states could do to sufficiently delay what will be... uh, a severe, probably a severe quiet recession. You know, I'm kind of should be wary about predicting things, but I think that's what we're seeing unfold at the moment. Siri, you know, we're seeing it in, in Australia. Some of the measurements the Reserve Bank has used is they've looked at the massive drop in uh, production 
that's happening in China that obviously impacts the demand for commodities coming from Australia though instantly instantly since it's impacted uh, the production of uh, coal in China that actually means that the price of coal hasn't dropped too badly I think I'm getting that right let me just check my papers here yeah, iron and coal prices have been resilient because it's impacted Chinese uh, iron and coal prices. But if you look at, uh, say, education or tourism, that's been immediately impacted. Uh, it's part of the reasons why people are selling off the Australian dollar because uh, they think, you know, this, you know, the Australian economy is going badly. People won't want the Australian dollar. They sell it off. Obviously, the dropping value in the Australian dollar has massive impacts. It has an impact uh, for, you know, the Reserve Bank loves it because it means Australian exports are more competitive because they're cheaper. But if you're an ordinary person, living in Australia, it means things that you buy from the world market are suddenly dearer. Of course, the wages that you're getting paid in are worthless. So I think we're only at the beginning of this COVID-19 crisis. The more that it Im impacts the you know, actually what's happening in the production of commodities and the, and the distribution of commodities that will have huge magnifying effects um, across the mode of production. Um, and of course, on, on the other side of that, we're with the panic that is happening in the financial markets and not just because you have fluctuations in these values, like who does that really affect, but because so many p players, workers, capital and states are reliant on profits from capital gains from the financial markets to subsidise um, declining um, profits, taxes and wages across the globe, this squeezes it uh, from the other side. What will this interruption look like? I think we're still very much early days. Um, because we are reliant on the capitalist mode of, mode of production to survive, with it going into cardiac arrest, suddenly throws into question, how can we live? And I really feel that what we might see tested in the coming days, months, years is a real debate between the state or the commons, really, um, with, with both left and right articulations. And I think we've probably been in that discussion for a while. All right, look, I, I'm, I'm going to only kind of um, have a minor edit of this and really just pump it out there. Uh, the point I probably didn't say enough but was really driving this is I really want to... Um, kind of work on a critique of those the kind of sub Keynesians in the Guardian who are basically arguing that if all we do is have a jobs guarantee and the state spends more then we can increase um, aggregate effective demand and that that will be enough to both stop recession and kind of chart a way out of neoliberal capital into something else. The point I really want to make is that the structural drivers of the crisis are deeper, more serious and much more difficult to solve. Um, I'm going to end that there. I hope you find that useful. I really just want to kind of get this out there rather than agonizing over it. Um, please, let's continue the discussion on Twitter. Um, my name's Dave. You can follow me at With Sober Senses, and you're listening to Living the Dream. Why you make us a prostitution misery?